So tonight we're going to talk about 1 Timothy. We'll walk through the book as best we can. If we run out of time, you've still got some sections in your notes. We may or may not get to all of them tonight. But if you turn your attention to your notes, what I did was, if you notice a passage in bold, we're going to read that tonight. If you notice a passage, there are many, that are not, that's not bolded, we're not going to read that tonight. I just wanted those to be in your notes. If you want to look more into this this week, that those connect there, and I will reference some of them, but we won't actually read them. And then we'll walk through the introduction setting, we'll walk through the content I broke up the book as, uh, as I've taught it before, and then a uh, recommended book on the back, I'll mention that, so uh, I will open us in prayer. Oh, and then at the back on the bottom is the structure, and again, we're giving you this chart almost every week because we want you just to see how the b- book breaks up, when it was written, who it's written to, just some basic things about it. And again, we get this uh, from Bruce Wilkinson and Kenneth Boa, Talk Through the Bible. It's a thick book, but it's hardback, not too expensive, and it's fantastic if you guys want just a survey of the whole Bible, and you want to look up a book that you're about to start studying, and you want to read a little bit about intro notes of it, that's a great resource to have. Bruce Bruce Wilkinson, Kenneth Boa, talk through the Bible. So if you guys want that, I will open us up in prayer, and then we'll dive in. God, thank you for inspiring Paul to write the young pastor Timothy, pastoring in Ephesus, this letter. And the second letter that we're going to hit next week, I pray that as your spirit led him to put every word he put on the page, even down to the verb tense, um, I trust that, and, uh, that you have the ability to, and I ask you to help us understand what it is that you are communicating, not only to the original audience, but also by extension to us tonight. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so that's the structure. We looked at that. That's on the back side of your handout at the bottom. If you want to dive into your notes for tonight, if you didn't get a copy of those, they're on the back. Then we'll start at the introduction slash settings. We'll jump in there. So the author, author is Paul. That's not disputed very much at all. Author is Paul. It's really clear. He wrote the letter to Timothy, a pastor that he placed in Ephesus, basically, and it really was more Paul's doing, obviously, the Holy Spirit through Paul with guidance on pastoring and how the church should operate. So that's what this entire letter is going to be about. So background on Timothy. He joined Paul's ministry of planting churches on Paul's second missionary trip. And we catch a little bit of a glimpse of that in Acts 16. So that's one of the few passages that we will read that is not in the book of 1 Timothy tonight. Acts 16, 1 through 5. If you guys want to turn there or just listen, Acts 16, 1 through 5 mentions Doesn't give a lot of details on Timothy, just mentions him and moves on. And so Timothy gets to travel with Paul during part of his missionary travels, and then eventually he ends up pastoring, and Paul asks him to stay in Ephesus. Acts 16, 1 through 5, Then he came to Derbe and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, so his mom's Jewish, but his father was Greek, so his father's Gentile, not Jewish. Mother's a believer. We don't think his dad is. It really doesn't say much about him. Never even gives us his name. It mentions him only here. And he, Timothy, was well spoken of by the brethren, the believers who are at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted to have him go on with him. And he took him and circumcised him. That's a whole other side story if you want to dig into that. Because of the Jews, not because he had to be circumcised to be saved. He didn't. But the Holy Spirit endorsed it for the sake of peace not for the sake of salvation, for the sake of peace with the Jews, 
because Paul and Timothy were working as a tag team and they were reaching a lot of the Jews. The Jews would have been offended. It's almost like today, it's actually, it's just like today, if you go minister to people in the Middle East, Muslims specifically, and they will ask you if they know that you're not from their country or even if you are, but you're stamped Christian on your birth certificate. Remember, you're not allowed to change in an Islamic country. You're not allowed to change what's on your birth certificate. Your religion's stamped there when you're born. And so if you're stamped Christian, they know that. They'll ask you, do you eat pork? And if you say anything other than no, they'll just write you off. They won't listen to you. So that's a little bit similar to back then what they had to do with the Jews. So Timothy, who was not circumcised, gets that because they didn't want to be an offense. They wanted to be able to reach the Jews. So the Holy Spirit endorses that, not for the sake of salvation, but for the sake of peace, so they can reach the Jews. So Paul, and so our missionary to uh, Pakistan, and he's from Pakistan. He says, I don't eat pork. I don't eat bacon. I wish I could, but I've set it aside so that I can honestly say no when they ask me that question when I'm witnessing to them. Verse 3, Paul wanted to have him go on with him. He took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region. For they all knew that his father was Greek. And as they went through the cities, they delivered to them the decrees to keep, which were determined by the apostles and the elders at Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in faith and increased in number daily. So circumcision and the Jew-Gentile tension with that particular issue, if you want to look more into that, so we're not going to read that for time's sake tonight, I put that passage in your notes there under that section, Acts 15, 1 through 31, just go read that, Acts 15, 1 through 31, and the Holy Spirit does very clearly endorse uh, what he said there about Timothy, so that they could continue to reach the Jews. It was not necessary for salvation, but it was necessary to reach the Jews. So men were circumcised to enter into the covenant people of God, and women were in the covenant by extension because they were connected to their father or their husband. So by extension, they were grafted in, if you want to say that. And although Paul knew Timothy didn't need to be cut to be saved, he did it for the sake of peace. Background on Ephesus. Next section in your notes. So Ephesus is in modern-day Turkey. It would be western Turkey, if you were to look at a map today. In biblical times, though, it was simply called Asia, but we don't call it Asia today. We would call it the Middle East. John also lived there with Mary, the Lord's mother, according to Irenaeus, an early church father. It records that John, uh, most likely, we think that John didn't die on Patmos where he was exiled and where he wrote the book of Revelation, that he actually lived. He was the only, one of the only guys to actually live to a ripe old age. And, uh, and moved back to Ephesus and took care of Mary. We do know that statement at the cross where Jesus says, hey, this is your, your mother, mother, behold your son. So John, interesting, not Jesus' siblings, took care of Mary. They lived there, according to Irenaeus. John's tomb is there, supposedly, where his tomb is. And the supposed home of Mary is there as well. It's now a shrine. It's just goofy. There's nothing holy about her home in and of itself. It was a very wealthy city, Ephesus was, uh, of trade with a huge port that had ships coming in and out all the time until the Romans stripped the land of its wooded hills, leading to soil erosion and basically turning the nice harbor into a swamp so it couldn't function as a harbor anymore. So the Romans basically ruined it. They didn't, sometimes they paid attention to rangeland ecology and sometimes they did not. This was the, one of the did not examples We learn from Tacitus that the city was founded in 1400 BC and it had a temple to the ancient fertility hunter goddess Diana. This temple is actually one of the seven wonders of the ancient world that's in Ephesus where sexual rituals took place involving prostitutes and worship of demonic entities. Uh, 
Some people were in it for the occult, demonic aspect. Some people were just in it because it was where, you know, a house of ill repute, basically. They were just, you know, these sailors would get off the boat and go visit the temple and sleep with the prostitutes. And so uh, the temple's income was threatened by Paul's preaching, which led to his departure from the area. So if you want to go read that on your own this week, that's Acts 19, 1 through 41, explains that process. Because he says, hey, turn away from idolatry, and the guys that are making the idol figures, selling them, making money off of it, and the temple's income was threatened in a big way So, uh, with the coming of the gospel. Ephesus was a regional center for the study of magic, well known for incantations, occult books, and charms, and it was riddled with uh, witchcraft and idol worship. But it later became, so think about the turn of events here, the same city, Ephesus, that was once a center of magic and the occult, later became the center for the missionary operations in, back then, what they called Asia, for that entire area. So think about an awesome example that that is of God redeeming the land. The land's defiled, demonic influence is very heavy there, and then later God ends up coming in and his people and totally redeems the land, the area, what it's used for. I think that's an awesome story. Ephesus totally turns. Jesus gave the church and the pastor in Ephesus a report card in Revelation. So that's one of the few passages we will read. Look at Revelation. Turn all the way to your right. Chapter 2, verse 1 through 7. Revelation 2, 1 through 7. Revelation chapter 2, 1 through 7. Jesus giving the church of that day, although there's application for us today too, and possibly even prophetic application, but the church of that day in Ephesus, he's writing through John, exiled on Patmos, remember, this letter to the church. So it actually went to them, was circulated, to the angel of the church, or messenger, literally, of the church of Ephesus write, these things says, he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your work, your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil, and you've tested those who say they're apostles, and they're not, and you've found them to be liars, so they tested doctrine, they had pure doctrine, and you've preserved and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, Jesus says, so this is basically a report card to each of these seven churches. You're doing this well, you need to improve here. Nevertheless, I have this against you. Okay, well, if Jesus says this, my ears better perk up. Uh, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Uh, Probably talking about their influence, obviously not their salvation. You can't lose that. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, and I also hate that. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So interesting, the tree of life comes back into play uh, in the end times. So look again at verse 2 and 3 and then verse 4. So 2 and 3, he basically says, look, you've worked hard to maintain pure doctrine, pure teaching. You made sure the teaching's accurate. You've called out the guys that bring in false teaching. But verse 4 You've left your first love. They were so busy chasing down false teachers and false doctrines and exposing them that they had mistaken this as their primary mission. So Jesus wants devotion, not just doctrine. He wants pure teaching as well. But he wants devotion, not just doctrine. 
I think you clearly see that from the letter, the the report card that the church at Ephesus gets. Remember, this is where Timothy pastors. This is why we're looking at this when we go through 1 Timothy. But it's easy to see how the church at Ephesus got there. Uh, If you look at later, if you look at Acts 20, 17 through 38, one of the last, Acts 20, 17 through 38, one of the last things Paul warns this church about as he's going to, about to be arrested, he has one last meeting with the elders in this area, and he meets with them. They have a conference, and one of the last things Paul warns them about is wolves coming in, bringing false teaching. So you can understand, they're one of their main mentors and church planners. That's the, one of the last things he warns them about. Yeah, you can understand. Maybe they would get a little overzealous for that one thing and lose sight of some other things. We have the tendency to do the same thing. So you can see indications of what Ephesus struggled with if you want to by going and reading this week uh, through Ephesians, 1 Timothy, where we are tonight, and 2 Timothy. So content section in your notes. 1 Timothy, chapter 1, content section. So you have Paul's introduction in verse 1 and 2. Here's what he says. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ our hope. Verse 2, to Timothy, a true son in the faith. That's important, remember that a true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. So a lot of time, moms will be concerned that they won't be able to transfer their faith in Jesus that they have as a mother to their son because of the absence of any real spiritual leadership from the dad. And I think that plays into verse one and two here. Timothy's mother was successful in transferring her faith to Timothy, even in the spiritual absence of his father. Remember that passage we read in Acts. All it said was his father was a Greek, probably referencing the fact that he wasn't a believer because it said his mother was, she was Jewish, and she was a believer, so was his grandmother. Well, she was successful in transferring her faith to him because look at what Paul says. Look at what Paul calls him in verse 2, chapter 1, a true son in the faith. So Timothy's mom transferred her faith to her son so well that Paul, an apostle with extremely tough standards, Remember he, when Mark, who writes the Gospel of Mark, when Mark leaves in the middle of one of their missionary journeys after joining Paul and his cousin Barnabas, Paul writes him off and says, look, if you're not going to even finish a mission trip with us, if your diligence level is not even that high, you can go travel with somebody else. I'm done. So they go on their next missionary trip, and Barnabas brings Mark, and Paul says, basically, what's he doing here? And Barnabas says, well, he's coming with us. And Paul says, no, he's not. And so they have a heated debate. And so basically, well, the Holy Spirit still uses this because they, they, they do form two teams instead of one. But basically, Barnabas goes with Mark, and Paul goes with uh, Silas, I think. Paul goes with some other guys. And, and So Paul, with those kind of strict standards, calls Timothy a true son in the faith. He, see, he places him in Ephesus to pastor there uh, for him because he can't stay there. And so obviously, a guy with that high standards sees immense value of leadership Christian leadership from this guy named Timothy. So I think, just as a side note, for those, as application for those mothers who struggle with that, Timothy's mom absolutely was able to do it. So uh, next section, 1, 3 through 11, a pastor's responsibility. This goes over any pastor's responsibility, including Timothy. So he says this, 1, 3 through 11. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay in Ephesus, that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine nor give heed to fables. Remember that connects to Acts where he warns the elders in that area, hey, there's gonna be wolves coming in bringing false teaching and goofy stuff. Nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification, building up, which is in faith. Now the purpose of the commandment is 
love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith, from which some, the faith, having strayed, have turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, but understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. Then he says, but we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is honorable, I'm sorry, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but the lawless and insubordinate. In other words, it's there to govern or regulate or set barriers around human behavior. If we weren't inherently sinful, we wouldn't have to have the law because we would know to do it and we would do it. But it's there to create those boundaries and to punish when we cross them. For the ungodly and the sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers, murderers of mothers, and manslayers, for fornicators and sodomites, uh, for kidnappers, liars, perjurers, and if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. So any pastor's responsibility, if you look at verse 11, the gospel which was committed to my trust, any pastor's responsibility is to guard the accuracy and the teaching of the message of the gospel. That's any pastor's responsibility. Why? So that you'll see, you as the church will see verse 5 show up in your life. He says, the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith. So that word love there is agape. In other words, choosing to love someone based on the value that God assigns to them. The value that you recognize they have, that God's given to them. You love them based on whatever that value is. And so that's what Paul's saying. Listen, all this stuff, don't get caught up in the endless genealogies and the argument about things that don't matter. And some of the Jews would get caught up in that, as might be what he's referencing. But the purpose of everything we're teaching is that you love each other from a pure heart. You love each other based on the value that they have. That should be the result of your ministry, Timothy, in other words. Now, Paul gives his testimony, 1, 12 through 17, the next section in your notes. Paul gives his testimony in that, that whole section, 12 through 17. It's not the only place he does it, but it's, uh, it's one of the really good ones. So he says this. Um, before we read this, let me just say, your salvation is not just for you. We see that in this passage. It's also to broadcast to other people what God did with you and the fact that what he did with you, he can do the same thing with them. And you'll see that play out uh, in 13, 12 and following. Okay, verse, chapter 1, verse 12. I thank God, uh, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me because he counted me faithful putting me into the ministry. In other words, hey, I didn't decide to do this one day. He told me to do it. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, I spoke against God, a persecutor, remember he arrested and uh, Christians sometimes had him killed, stoned. I was an insolent man, but I obtained mercy. Why? Because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. I didn't know what I was doing. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom, sinners, I'm chief. And Paul's saying, I'm the biggest sinner that I can think of. I did horrible things to the church. However, for this reason, I obtained mercy so that, not just for him, catch why, so that in me first Jesus Christ might show all patience, long-suffering, as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life, now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever, amen. He just erupts in praise at the end of his testimony and gives God, uh, brings God praise. So, Jesus wanted to use Paul as an illustration of his patience to show people that they can be saved just like Paul was saved, no matter what they've done, and that he wants to do the same thing 
with each one of us, uh, someone you're witnessing to. It sometimes helps to know that. I've, I've even come across people, they have different reasons. Uh, there are some people who grow up in, in a religious environment but never bend their knee and trust Christ personally. They just grow up in that environment, which is still good to grow up in that environment, but you've got to personalize the decision. So sometimes when we share Christ with those, those are sometimes actually the hardest, believe it or not. Because as our pastor says, and he's dead right, you, you have to, <laughs> follow me, you have to get them unsaved to get them saved, is what he says. In other words, you have to show them that they're not saved. They think they are because they grew up in church. Before you can go, okay, now here's Christ and here's what he did for you. And so sometimes that actually is, is one of the harder ones. Uh, but then also sometimes, you're witnessing to people who, who totally grew up uh, in a life totally apart from God. And oddly enough, sometimes those are the people who sometimes are easier to reach. So reaching people with the gospel, I think, should be our main intent. That's Paul's point in giving his testimony, saying, hey, this wasn't just for me. This was for me to share. That should be our main intent when we share our testimony. It's not to win a debate. It's to, if they're debating, then they're just, their heart's not totally ready yet. That's okay. It's okay. You say, hey, here's my business card. If you want to talk more about it, call me. We'll grab coffee. Ball's in your court. No pressure. And then if they want to, they can do that. And that's the whole point, if they want to. If you're trying to win a debate and they're debating back, sometimes there's a place for that. I'm not saying there's never a place for that. But usually that just means, okay, well, they're, they're not ready yet. If they're still arguing. And, and really, they're arguing with God, not just you. So pressure's off you. Uh, and it's not to win a debate. It's to point the person we're talking to to Jesus's purpose in, uh, for their life. So just a thought for application. If you were to write your testimony, maybe a three to five minute story of how you came to trust Christ and what he's done with you since then, what would that look like? So Paul giving his testimony, I think that's a great question to ask yourself. Okay, next section. Timothy's calling 1, 18 through 20. So it finishes out the first chapter. He says this, 1, 18. This charge I commit to you, son Timothy. Remember, he's the pastor in Ephesus. Paul's left, but he's writing him a couple of letters. According to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them, the prophecies, you may wage the good warfare. Now, when he says prophecies, we think most likely he's talking about the ordination ceremony, that you would have a group of guys. They're not ordaining Timothy as a pastor into the ministry, and we still do this today. They're not the ones doing the ordaining, although that's the language that we use. But we understand we're not the ones ordaining. God, through his spirit, is ordaining the person to the calling. We're simply recognizing and affirming that, yes, that's legitimate. And so uh, that's probably what Paul's referring to, is, and he refers to it a few times with Timothy, back to his ordination ceremony, where basically guys lay hands on and pray over uh, the person being ordained. And so he's... he's reminding Timothy of his calling. He's rooting his mind back to his calling. So he said, having faith and a good conscience, which some having rejected, faith and good conscience, concerning the faith have suffered shipwreck, of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, I'll explain this, whom I delivered to Satan, what does that mean? So that they may learn not to blaspheme. So Paul provides Timothy encouragement regarding his position in God's service. He also explains how you should live your life to not shipwreck your faith. So if you look at 18, he says, by them wage the good warfare. What's them? He's talking about the prophecies. So you let, and this is true for all of us. Now, Timothy's a pastor. We're not all called to that, but we're all called to full-time ministry of some sort, whether it's pastoring or whatever it is. And so 
You let your calling from God be the source of your confidence. That's what Paul's pointing Timothy back to. Not someone's response to your ministry, not how your ministry turns out, not the results of your ministry, the numbers, or anything else. Your calling from God is, should be the source of your confidence to do whatever he's called you to do, period. The other things are just incidentals, and they, they come and go, and they ebb and flow, and they change, and, but his calling never changes. It's, it's from him. Uh, look at 119. It mentions faith and good conscience. So faith and conscience, basically, faith, by the way, let's define that real quickly. Faith is a yes response to anything God says or does. So God comes in, says this, I'm this, you know, I did this for you, whatever it is. And my response is, oh, yeah, yes, I need that. So faith and conscience. Conscience is something God wires into your brain before you are saved. It's, it's a gift given to everyone. Even unbelievers have it. Now, they can sear it. It can be overactive or underactive in different areas. Uh, and when I'm saved, it's still there, but now the Holy Spirit through his word is informing it to fine-tune it to where it needs to be because sometimes it's overactive, sometimes it's underactive. Sometimes it might be seared and the, whole, and the Holy Spirit needs to bring it back to life. So, but it's a gift given to everyone and, uh, and it's wired into the brain and it's fascinating that I've even watched a documentary from Christian neuroscientists. So they're neuroscientists and they're believers and they're, they're looking at passages like this that refer to the conscience and they're saying this exactly lines up with what we're finding. There's the prefrontal cortex of your brain is the, your brain's braking system, the judgment seat, the seat of judgment. Well, they're finding with people who have certain addictions, with people who get into dysfunctional cycles of behavior, that it limits the blood flow and the synapse firing of that area of the brain. They've done brain scans and measured this stuff. And so they're saying this is the biblical inference of their conscience in this area, their conscience becoming seared. And these, so these Christian neuroscientists are saying what we're finding lines up exactly with what Scripture says. We do have a conscience. It is a gift that God gives to everybody. And so those, those two things, your faith and your conscience, basically act like a rudder. Big ship, comparatively small rudder, Correct? And that, what, what does that rudder do? It determines the whole course of where the ship goes and if it turns and what direction it turns and how. So that's the image here. So he's saying, look, I want you to have faith and a good conscience because some have rejected those two things, he's saying, concerning the faith, and they've suffered, suffered shipwreck. So you let those two things guide you so that you don't wreck the ship. You don't shipwreck your life. But even if you do shipwreck your life, look at verse 20. Of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan. That phrase connected to 1, Timothy, uh, 1 Corinthians 5, that phrase means breaking fellowship with someone, that they're removed from the fellowship of the church. You don't do that willy-nilly. It's got to be egregious sin, very loud, and it's, uh, it's got to be unrepentant sin. In other words, I'm doing this. It's a big, big, big deal. And the guy in 1 Corinthians 5 was sleeping with his stepmom. Church knew about it. Church wouldn't do anything about it. Yeah, that stuff happened back then, too. And uh, Paul says, you guys need to deal, deal with this. And he uses that same phrase. So it's cutting off fellowship. He says, don't even eat with him. If he's unrepentant. If he's repentant, you help him change. But if he's unrepentant, don't even eat with him. Now later, he probably repents because 2 Corinthians, I think it's chapter 2, he references a guy and he says, the punishment inflicted by the majority has been enough. He's repentant. Now welcome him back. And we think he might be talking about that guy. So that's the deal here with Hymenaeus and Alexander. They're blaspheming. They're speaking against God clearly, so it's, it's a loud, egregious sin. It's not like, oh, I stubbed my toe and said a four-letter word. That's not what he's talking about. It's loud, egregious, habitual, unrepentant, I don't care, I'm not going to change it kind of a sin. 
So he says, I delivered them to Satan. But look, so that, because it's easier for Satan to influence them, he can influence us when we're involved in church, (laughs) yes, but it's even easier. We're more accessible when we're away from the herd because he hunts like a lion. A lion doesn't get any zebra he wants. He gets the zebra, he goes, hey, y'all go eat, I'm gonna do my own thing. So uh, he said, I delivered to Satan, why? So that they might learn that may learn is, is the, the way the Greek structures that verb is intent. This is the intent. This is the desire of my heart to why I did that. Why did I do that? Because my intent was I wanted them to learn not to blaspheme. So that's, I think, the great news. Even when you do wreck your life like Hymenaeus and Alexander did, you can still recover from that shipwreck no matter what it is by realizing the results of you speaking against whatever God's saying to you. That's what blaspheme means, to disagree with or to speak against. And turning back to him and letting him guide you. Now, can you do that, what he's talking about? And everything he's going to talk about in the context of this letter. Can you do that without the local church? No. Look at this entire passage. Look at this entire letter. The context is active involvement in the local church. Not perfect, because it's got imperfect people in it. Obviously, yeah. Nobody's going to lie about that. Uh people that do are just crazy and trying to live in a fantasy world. Not perfect, but it's God's chosen mechanism or group or meeting to help me grow, to pray for one another, to encourage one another, to find strength. It's the only organization in the entire world in the history of humankind that Jesus says, he didn't say this about anything else, the gates of hell will not prevail against. He doesn't say that about a company. He doesn't say that about a football team. He doesn't say that about anything else but the church. And so everything we're reading today, just keep that in mind. uh, Next section, our calling to pray. Chapter 2, verse 1 through 7. Therefore, I exhort, I'm telling you to do this, first of all, that supplications, prayers, and intercessions, and giving of thanks, even if you don't like them, you still can be thankful for them, be made for all men, and specifically he's going to talk about people in authority. Look at verse 2. For kings and all who are in authority... Why? Well, here's the so that again. So that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. Because this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. I'm a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and in truth. So in this section, Paul calls them to prayer. I think we need to go to our knees in prayer as believers more than we go to social media to post. Now we can go post, but we need to do this more than we do that. We need to go to our knees in prayer more than we go to the ballot box to vote. The ballot box is important. I think it's a duty of ours with the privilege to be able to vote in this country. We need to go do that. There's an election going on right now. There's early voting this week, next week, through Friday at 7 p.m., and then voting day is the first Tuesday of November. There's a couple positions up, but one of the main things is there's eight proposed amendments to the Texas Constitution. The way the Texas Constitution is structured differently from the Fed, the way it's structured is you can't do anything, basically, unless it says specifically that you can which is tedious, but I kind of like that. So there are eight proposed amendments to it uh, to think about, look up, go vote on. So go do that. But Paul's saying, look, we should go to our knees in prayer for these leaders more 
And with more fervor and more diligence and more excitement and more, diligence and more uh, commitment than we do for, than we go to the ballot box to vote. We need to do both, but prayer is crucial. Now, he also explains, uh, he's going to say that what he wants you to pray for, those people in authority over you, the reason he wants you to do that is so that your prayer will create an environment, and God will use it in this way, where the gospel can go out best where you can best share the truth about Jesus Christ. So in other words, you're not just voting for, although those implications are fine, but you're not just voting for your pocketbook. You're not just voting for, oh, I like this guy, or I don't like her, or I like her. You're also voting for the situation, for the, for the area to be best, for the culture and the government to have the best possible scenario to share the gospel, whatever that looks like. So that, to Paul's heart, if you read that passage closely, carefully, is more important than those other things. I'm not saying those other things are unimportant, but that's the most important. Okay, next section, 2, 8 through 15, is instruction for worship, uh, in instruction in worship for men and women. So that's 2, 8 through 15. 2, 8 says, I desire therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. So he's continuing the prayer concept. He's gonna connect it to something In like manner also that the women, ladies, leave your guns in your purses and uh, don't, I don't have a bulletproof shield up here. uh, And that, uh, in like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing. There's a strict Pentecostalist, uh, Pentecostal application of that passage that would say no makeup, skirts down to your ankle, etc., uh, but there's a more balanced application that we tend to follow that says, look, it doesn't give a rule. It gives a principle. It doesn't say finger length. It doesn't say so many inches past you. It's not in there. It's a principle, and then it's up to us in the wisdom of the Holy Spirit in unity to s- decide, okay, how do we walk these principles out? So that's it. He's talking about the attitude, the spirit of the law, not so much the letter. And then he says this. He says, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. Let that be your beauty, in other words. Not just consumed with what you're wearing, but what you're doing. Let a woman learn in silence. He's not saying literally that they can't talk. We're going to see what he means by this. Let a, woman, let a woman learn in silence with all submission. I don't permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. That's the context of what he means when he says silence. For, uh, he gives two reasons. He goes back to the creation account. So this is rooted in creation. It's not just a contextual, contemporary issue to their day that doesn't apply today. It always applies. It's timeless. He goes back to creation, and he gives two reasons. Uh, He gives two reasons. He says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. So it's in the very creation order itself. And then he says, second reason, verse 14, and Adam was not deceived. In other words, his sin, Adam and Eve both equally sinned. But Adam's sin was, I know what I'm doing, and I'm going to do it anyway. Eve's sin was a sin of, I was deceived. I was talked into this. Those are, so both sin, though, both equally sinned. For Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she'll be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness. In other words, her way to overcome this. He's not saying you have to have kids to be saved, justified. Uh, If they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. So you have God's authority structure in Genesis in the creation account, chapter 1, chapter 2. In Genesis 3 with the fall, what you basically have is, and this is what he's referring back to, you have God, but even in the Godhead, you have 
a distinction in authority, right? What is it? We use the word Trinity. The word Trinity isn't even in our Bibles. It's a word we use to discuss something that is taught in our Bibles, but the actual word Trinity never appears. But what is it in the Godhead? Three persons. What's the authority structure? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit submits to the Son, submits to the Father. You have this submission structure. Does that make the Holy Spirit less God than Jesus? No. They're equal in worth and deity, but they're separate in authority structure, that they choose to jump into that part of the authority structure and walk out their role. You see that? Is Jesus any less God than the Father? No. But even though he's equal deity, he chooses to submit himself to, that's why you hear him say, hey, I don't want to do this, but nevertheless, not what I will, but what you, if this is the only way, I'll go to the cross. I'll die. Absolutely. Anytime you see the Holy Spirit show up and move, he never lifts himself up. Ever. He's never, he's always selfless. He's lifting up the son. He's lifting up the father. Typically, he's pointing to the son. So you have this distinction that's important. So you have God, but even in the Godhead, you have an authority structure. If God, if the Godhead, if the members of the Trinity don't walk out that authority structure, there's no salvation for any of us. If the Holy Spirit says, yeah, Jesus, I know you want me to go to that guy and prompt him to be saved, but I don't really feel like doing it. I have other stuff to do today. There's no salvation. If Jesus says, yeah, Father, I know the plan you set up for me to go to the cross and die for their sins, but that's going to be really hard. That's what the Garden of Gethsemane was all about. He was genuinely tempted, genuinely tempted not to do that. But, you know, uh, I don't really feel like doing that. That's going to be real painful. I don't want to die that way. In fact, I don't want to die at all. I'm not doing it. There's no salvation for us. There's only salvation because they chose to put themselves in that authority structure where they belong and walk out their role. So you have God, then you have man, mankind. But even with mankind, you have husband and wife. Same deal. There's no, they're equal in worth, equal in value. In fact, the Bible is the first book in human history that comes along and elevates the status and the value and the worth of women to be equal to men, even though there's this distinction and authority given. People say, man, the Bible holds women back. That is totally ignorant of any perspective of human history. Human history, women get treated, don't take my word for it, go look it up. They get treated like property. They get treated like dogs. The Bible's the first book, and God threw his word to come along and say, you can't do that. That's wrong. So equal worth, equal value, but there is a distinction. There's one distinction other than gender, obviously, body parts and gender. There's one main distinction here, spiritually, the authority structure. And so that's what he's saying. I do not permit, just in the church, he's not talking about a business. He's not talking about the military, although you might have your views about women in combat, he's not talking about the military. He's not talking about a position, a sports team, an organization. Uh, he's talking about the church. In the church and in the home, that's other passages that say that, he's saying, I don't permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. And so uh, women have immense value, though, to the kingdom of God. They play an indispensable, they play an irreplaceable part. Uh, in the church, in the home, in society. And so uh, I put, we're not going to go to them for time's sake, but I put a lot of passages in your notes if you want to go read that up, uh, look those up. Women's, contra- ladies' contribution to the kingdom of God is incalculable. Galatians 3, Luke 2, Luke 8, Acts 9, Acts 16, 18, uh, two pa- places, Romans 16. There's so many others. I just included a little snapshot there for you if you want to go chase those down this week. Um, that topic's going to come up again later when we talk about the qualification for pastors and deacons. Okay, next section, qualification for pastors. So three, one through seven. 
And then we'll jump over after that to 5, 17 through 25, because it deals with them there too, kind of sandwiched there. All right, chapter 3, verse 1 through 7. Oh, uh, by the way, let me go back to that. So you have God, you have mankind, you have angels, then you have uh, animals. We're supposed to have dominion as, man, as men and women over the animals, and then you have plants and the rest of creation. That's the dominion structure. That's the authority structure that God set up in Genesis. What happens in Genesis 3 at the fall? And, and Adam's referring to this in what he just said. What happens? Satan appears as a, an animal. When do we take our marching orders from animals? God gives us dominion over the animals, very clearly. He just did in the previous chapter, right? You have an, an angel appearing as an animal, to, and who does he come to first? In God's authority structure, who does he come to first? The wife, not the husband. Was that an accident? No. He's trying to take God's authority structure and, and turn it on its head. And he's always been trying to, to do this. That's why he got chunked out of heaven. So that's it. So he goes to Eve, deceives her. Um, Adam does nothing to stop it. Adam comes along. He's not deceived, but he willfully sins. So it's, but here's the interesting thing. So ladies, you're kind of off the hook on this. Every time you hear, Eve was the first one to sin, right? Every time you hear sin disgust entering the world referenced from Genesis 3, what do you hear in the Bible? It's in Adam. He's the leader. He, he takes the brunt of, you're the leadership, High authority, high accountability. So, ladies go, yeah. Okay, so, and hey, sometimes, what? Yeah, their eyes were opened once Adam took, denoting again that authority there. It all fits. It all fits. That's a good point. And sometimes you want to struggle and be the head until you're actually the head, then you go, oh man, I think it was better being the, so, Yeah. Being an associate pastor versus the senior pastor, I am totally okay with that. Listen, I, uh, I, uh, I am, I'm good. I'm good. Uh, don't think you ever a spirit of jealousy from me. It's the opposite. Okay, uh, qualifications and instruction for pastors. Chapter 3, verse 1 through 7. This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, uh, we're going to talk about that term. Bishop, elder, pastor is basically used interchangeably. I think they're referring to the same thing. There are some denominational traditions in the church, the Christian church, that separate those three. That's fine. I don't think God's mad at them. But I think scripture, other passages we don't have time to get into, clearly use those interchangeably. It's the same role. Uh, He desires a good work. A bishop must then be blameless, the husband of one wife. So here's our qualifications. Temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine. Doesn't mean never had a drink. It means not addicted to wine. Literally, the term means not addicted to wine. Not, although in some cases it might be wise to have, some churches have that rule of their ministers, and I wouldn't, uh, you know, that's up to the church. That's fine. Not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous, one who rules his own house well. If, some of, if one of you piped up and had a question and disagreed with something I said and I went to swing in fists, I would be disqualified. I don't fit the bill here, right? One who rules his own house well. Having his children in submission with all reverence, if he has children, obviously. That does not mean that his kids have to be sinless. It does mean that he always deals with the sin when it's there. Because he's going to say, if he doesn't deal with it there, he's not going to deal with it in the church. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, that means a brand new believer. 
Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation of the devil. Interesting. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. That phrase in the middle of that, those who are outside, I talk, maybe I'll talk more about it some other time, is the phrase I struggle with most in this entire letter. A good testimony toward those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach. Uh, what does that mean? What all would that include? You know? Lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. And so he's, that was his qualifications. Um, and 1 Peter 5, I put this in your notes, but we're not going to read these passages. Pastor, elder, overseer, these three titles, 1 Peter 5, are used interchangeably. Peter uses them that way. So I think they're the same person or office, not three different ones. 2 Timothy 4.2, you can teach and not be a pastor, but you can't be a pastor and not be able to teach. Titus 2.15 and 19, the pastor does have an authority in the church to rebuke, correct, and to exhort, instruct, and that authority is given to him by God. But at the same time, I think a wise pastor will, of course, let the deacons advise him and help him solve issues in the church, assuming that they're, assuming that they're qualified as deacons. Here, we don't have to worry about that, trust me. But in some churches, you do. And you get, you're a, you're a deacon? Okay. First uh, Timothy 4, 12 through 16, Ephesians 4, 11 and 12, a pastor's called to take God's word and drive it into your life where you understand how to walk it out and why it's important to walk it out. If he doesn't do that or can't do that, he has no right to be a pastor. Acts 20, 17, 28 through 31, the Holy Spirit is the one who does the calling for this role or any role you're calling, same thing. Uh, it's not, doesn't come from man, it comes from God. Paul makes that clear in his other writings. Titus 3, 10 through 11, and 1 Timothy 1, 20 says, pastors have the authority to remove people from the church, but it's only for egregious, unrepentant sin. It's gotta be loud, it's gotta be damaging and detrimental, it's gotta be unrepentant. It's not just, we're hunting for something. No, 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 trust me, we're not hunting, <laughs> trust me. They come to the surface, they surface, and they come and we're like, well, okay, now we have to deal with them now. Uh, 517 through 25 is the next section that deals with this position of elder or pastor or bishop. You could call me bishop. No, Uh, 517 through 25, don't do that. Um, Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor. He's talking about honoring different people in this section, honoring widows, honoring pastors, be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine, teaching. For the scripture says, and he quotes the Old Testament, you should not muzzle an ox while it treads the grain so that he can't eat while he's working, in other words. And he quotes another passage, the laborer is worthy of his wages. So he's talking about money here. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. Guess where our founding fathers get the two witnesses idea from? Those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all. What does that mean? We'll talk about that in a second. So that the rest may fear. I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that you observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing without par- uh, with partiality. Don't lay hands on anyone hastily. He's talking, again, ordination ceremony. So it's talk about hiring staff, basically. Don't do that hastily, nor share in other people's sins. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water. So Timothy apparently had a stomach ailment. So Paul says, hey, drink a little wine for your stomach to help your frequent infirmities. Some men's sins are clearly evident, preceding them to judgment, but some will follow later. Likewise, the good works of some are evident, and those that are otherwise cannot be hidden. In other words, character is always eventually evident and visible. So, 
uh, this section, 17 through 25, tells us what our responsibility is to you, and then it turns around and it tells you what your responsibility is to us. So from 517, um, our responsibility is to rule well and to teach. 517 and 18, your responsibility is to pay us for that work. It doesn't say an amount, so there's just a principle there. You know, it, it shouldn't be, I don't need my own private jet. You know, that's silly. But, uh, but I also don't need to be on food stamps either. That's equally silly. So, um, and I know some pastors who even tell their church, look, we take the average salary of the church and whatever that is, that's what I'll take. And so I've even seen pastors do that. Um, number two, if you look at verse 19 through 21, your responsibility is also to hold us accountable. And uh, I think there's, not here, but I'm just talking about the church in general. I don't think there's enough of that going on sometimes, an unwillingness to hold us accountable. So an accusation that would disqualify us to be pastors based on the list in 3, 1 through 7 that we just covered needs to have two or three witnesses for verification, at least two witnesses. So verse uh, 19 says two witnesses. So if you're not a witness, you don't bring an accusation. You don't spread the accusation without firsthand knowledge. We don't follow hearsay. So that's what he says. And then look at verse 20. He says, those who are sinning, rebuke. Sinning is a present active verb there. It means they keep on doing it. They're not going to stop. It's unrepentant, in other words. It's a continual. It's not like, oh man, he did this one thing way back in the past before he was saved. No, no, no. And we're going to dig up that old dirt. It's present tense. Keep on sinning. So you don't try to bring up old dirt. Use it against it. That's mudslinging. That's what politicians do. That's not what we do. So look at verse 21. Uh, he says, observe these things without prejudice and with, uh, do nothing with partiality. So you don't form an opinion until you know the facts. And you don't pick a side just because it's the popular side or the majority side or something arbitrary like that, whether you're punishing or choosing not to punish. So for example, you don't let giftedness trump character. There's a worship pastor at a previous church I once worked at, and he uh, left his wife for another woman, and his, his deal was, I don't care, I'm not going to change, I'm not repentant about it, get over it, and I'm not going to do anything to change it. How, how brash do you have to be to have that attitude when people know it ha- it's happening and they come to you on it, and they're trying to help you for crying out loud, and that's your attitude? It's just insane. That's it. That's, that's what pride, that's what sin does, right? Many in the choir, a lot of choir members, didn't want to fire him because he was so gifted, they didn't want to lose that, and he was, sadly. They didn't want to lose that, and so they said, well, maybe we can keep, maybe we can. No, no. He's doing it. He doesn't care. He's unrepentant. He's not going to try to make things work with his, with his wife. No, no, and so they had to, to fire him. Um, now, look at verse 20. Those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all that the rest also may fear. So if an accusation fits these principles and violates the character defined in chapter 3, then you deal with it, and Paul says you expose it in front of the whole church. That's what Paul said. Was he unclear? No, he's not unclear. More um, Higher authority equals higher accountability. That's it. Now, why would Paul say that? That sounds harsh. Attorneys today would advise against handling a situation that way because of the fear of lawsuits, and you could get one, right? So why do it that way? Why would Paul say that? Why would he be so harsh? Look at the verb at the end of verse 20. Those who are sinning, he's talking about elders, he's talking about unrepentant sin, rebuke in the presence of all, 
There's another passage where it says, when you're gathered together, do this, so that the rest, who's that? Possibly the other elders, but he's talking about the other members, the rest of the church, also may, what's that verb? Fear. It needs to be brought before the whole church because it needs to function as a warning. That's why I put 1 Corinthians 5 in there. That's what happens. Why deal with it that way? So that members of the church understand God's standards so that the sinning pastor will suffer by being pushed out of fellowship only if he's not repentant and have the best chance possible at repentance and bring restored back into fellowship. God doesn't always tell us to do things that are easy. God's not concerned with whether it's easy for us. He's concerned with whether we point people to him and whether we obey what his word says. And letting anyone in the church, a pastor who has known visible public sin that would disqualify their leadership position, continue to lead because of our laziness and refusal to deal with it is just flat out wrong. And so uh, the, uh, the pressure to... And you say, man, well, what about their kids? What about their wife if they're married, if they have a family? You know, they're going to know, yeah, you're kind of throwing them under the bus. Yes. But that's what we signed up for. You know, Moses, okay, Moses has an awesome ministry. At the end of his ministry, he makes one mistake. And he's dealing with the most stubborn people in the universe. He makes one mistake. Instead of speaking to the rock again, he strikes it. And God says, you're not taking them into the promised land like you were. I'm going to use Joshua to do it. I'll take you up on a mountain. You can see the land, but you're not going to get to cross over. Why is God so harsh? You look at that and you go, well, God's being unfair. Why? Moses messes up one time. The people deserved a lot more than that. I mean, they were stubborn and hard-headed and hard to work with. High authority, high accountability. And, and uh, the pressure to teach, so to close up this section, the pressure to teach accurately when the text you're in is corrective of some problem is sometimes immense. It makes the task far more difficult. And I think that's part of why pastors, and especially the senior pastor, are given the authority that they're given in Scripture. Um, It's not to lord that authority over you. That's a misuse of it. That's abuse and that's wrong. It's because sometimes we need that authority to correct things that would poison the church and kill our effectiveness at showing God's image. And that's why God says through through Paul to Timothy here, hey, if, this is, if they're doing this and this and this, you need to deal with it. Uh, don't, don't let it sit there. Uh, then you have qualifications for deacons. Chapter 3, verse 8 through 13. The qualification list for deacons and pastors are very, very similar. There's a lot of overlap. But there's one big distinction. Deacons don't have to be able to teach. They can, but they don't have to to be a deacon. Pastor does. If he can't, he's not qualified. So likewise, deacons, 3.8, must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money. That sounds very similar, right? Holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. In other words, what they know about the Bible, they live out. But let these also first be tested, then then let them serve as deacons being found blameless. Likewise, their wives, interesting, if they're married, it gives qualification for their wives. Why? Well, they're working as a team. I mean, what husband and wife couple do you know walking out biblical standards that aren't a team. We're called to be a team. So if we're working as a team, and part of the, we're, we don't have time to look at this, but part of the original reason deacons were formed in the book of Acts was not just to serve. The word deacon means serve. That's what the word means. But it's not just to serve. You know, in, in preaching school, we used to always joke like, oh, yeah, make the deacons do it. No, no, no. That's not their only purpose. Their original purpose through service in Acts when they were first formed 
was to help solve disputes in the church through service. So if you're a husband and wife team and the husband's helping deal with an issue in the church that doesn't need, he doesn't need to be blabbing that all over the place. Y'all following me? And his wife is with him as a team working on that same thing and she's a gossip, it's not gonna work. Y'all seeing that? Okay, that's why he puts that in there. Their wives must be reverent, not slanders, temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husband of one wife, so a one-woman man, just like a, a pastor is called to be, ruling their children and their own house as well. We don't have time to get into it tonight, but there's an argument over what the husband of one wife means. Does it mean ever? Uh, does it mean um, a one-woman man so that he's, maybe he's messed up in the past in that area, but now he's committed to this one woman? There's different thoughts there. Uh, Deacons, the husband of one wife, ruling their children and their own household well. For those who have served well as deacons, obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith, which is in Christ Jesus. So I put Acts 6, uh, 1 through 7 in your notes. That's the first story of when you see deacons show up. By the way, deacon is a noun. It means servant. But there's also the office of deacon. Okay, deacon can also be a verb in the Greek. That's a verb, to serve. I'm serving. Well, in preaching school, they never brought this up. <laughs> Probably if it would fit them, but I found this and said, this is just as important. So deacons, someone in the office of deacon, deacons, they serve as a verb. Well, in Scripture, in the New Testament, there's also, not as often, but you also see it a few times, pastors deacon. Pastors serve and minister. Same verb, same word. So it's not that, okay, yes, the bulk of our time can be spent mentoring people, discipling people, studying the word, teaching, things like that. Yes, but we're also called to serve. It's not like, okay, we're out of all service and we're just going to go do this other stuff and lock ourselves in some ivory tower and let the deacons do all of it. No, we're both called to, do, to serve. So uh, deacon means one who serves. Deacons are meant to free up the elders or pastors to give more attention to prayer, teaching the word, spiritual oversight, counseling people, etc. And I think a church can only be successful with committed members, that's you, and committed leadership, both from pastors and deacons, being fully committed to the scriptures and to the people that they serve, because we're both called to serve. Um, Now, in case you're thinking that this passage doesn't apply to you because it's talking about deacons, that thinking is wrong. I think this applies to every one of us because you want to embrace the qualities that are in this passage, no matter who you are. Those are great things to, to aim your prayer life and your, your ministry at. As a church, we want to have the quality here that produces both pastors and deacons. And so if we don't have those qualities as a group, we'll, we will decay over time. While there is an official office of deacon biblically in the local church, there are people in the church and in this church in Kelvie who aren't officially deacons, but functionally speaking, they meet the biblical qualifications, they serve faithfully, and so those qualities and service are great for anyone to aim their life at. And uh, look back at the list of qualifications that we just read. I mean, 3, 1 through 13. Is that how culture defines success? That's how God defines success for a pastor or a deacon. Is that how the culture defines success, these terms? No, we're not even close. Sometimes there's a little bit of overlap, but no, that's not their list at all. So God cares about whether you let his character show up in your life, not about whether you're successful according to the definition of success that comes from the culture around you. That's not the measuring stick. So uh, 
you know, if you watch the show Friday Night Lights or the movie that's about the deal, you know, here at Permian, down the, down the road, uh, you look at the way the football coach gets treated when he loses two games in a row. There's a, somebody puts for sale sign uh, in his front yard. You know, you look at the way we treat our high school football coaches, and it's terrible. We should be more concerned with the character they're training our kids to have than with the results of a scoreboard. So are you raising your kids or your grandkids to be successful according to the world's terms or to be godly? So success is fine, but not at the expense of godliness. And I think that you see that when you really sit there and read and chew on and think about these lists of qualifications. Mystery of godliness is three fourteen through 16. These things I write to you that I may come to you shortly, but if I'm delayed, I write to you so that you may know how you should conduct yourselves in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar. So it's the foundation. It's not the source of the truth, but it's Christ's foundation. Uh, The pillar and ground of the truth, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. And we think they may have even used this next phrase as a song of some sort. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up in glory. So basically, as the church, you have the unique and extremely important purpose of broadcasting God's character and his message to those around you. So godliness is a message, and it's an action. It's both. It's not just one or the other. It's a message, and it's an action, and that's what you see in 14 through 16. If you have a message with no action... That doesn't work. If you have just action with no message behind it, that's the social gospel. That's a false gospel. It doesn't work. It's good works without the gospel attached. So um, then you see in 4, 1 through 16, I think for time's sake we won't read all that, but 4, 1 through 16, you see the next section. Paul warns Timothy about it to protect the church from a slow, dangerous drift. Uh, What should I say here? Look at verse 1. Don't pay attention to deceiving spirits in the doctrine of demons. You see that? That word deceiving is where we get our word planet. They called them planets because they slowly wandered in the sky. It wasn't quick. You didn't wake up one night and look in the night sky and the well, planets, Jupiter's there, and then the next night it's over here. It slowly moved over time. That's the Greek word uh, that we use here for deceit, that Paul uses for deceiving. It's a slow shift from the truth. You're not going to wake up one morning and then some false teacher is going to come in and say, I'm the Lord Jesus Christ, come worship me. And he's not gonna do that in one day. It's gonna be a slow, subtle, he'll start with this lie and then insert this and then build that onto it, build that. And so that's what Paul's warning Timothy about. Look, it's gonna be slow, but you need to warn about this dangerous drift to uh, warn people, uh, to teach people away from God's word, away from the accuracy of the gospel, to bring in other things. Um, I don't need to come up with too many examples today because they're all around us, right? Um, So that's it. My ethics prof said something I think is fantastic to think about as a general principle. He said any institution should steer, and he was talking about the seminary then, any institution needs to steer right just to stay straight because the natural bent, and I'm not talking right-left politics, I'm talking left to just spin off. You need to steer right to stay straight because our natural bent is, is the other way. So, uh, 5, 1 through 16, how to treat various members of your church family. It has different age groups. It has widows. So, if you look at 5, 3 through 16, that was actually the widow's qualification list. The church of Ephesus had an active running widow's list, and to be on that list, you had to meet the qualifications that Paul gives 
in 3 through 16. And so that's there. Um, He talks about honoring widows who are truly widows. So I think some application from this section. With helping people comes the opportunity to influence them with the gospel. I go help them. I have the opportunity to minister to them, right? Those two things go hand in hand. As we've relegated in this country much of that assistance to the government through welfare programs, we've lost many of the opportunities that we would have had to be a witness through helping. So I think we can, and I think that's a problem, and that's, that's not healthy. And so I think we can gain some of that influence back by praying for and looking for opportunities to help people with legitimate needs. And then as we're helping them with that legitimate need, not a want or something they made up, you know, a legitimate need, uh, then we have the chance to share Christ. Look, this is why I'm doing this. We have the chance to share the gospel. So I think that's how we can take some of that influence back. Because let's be honest, I mean, with the, with the, with the food stamp program, I mean, they, they get a card, what is it, in the mail or something? They get a Texas Lone Star card, and, and there's no personal handshake. There's no, hey, let me tell you why I'm doing this to help you. There's nothing. It's disconnected from the gospel. It's just help but there's no gospel attached. So we're the ones, the only ones who can come in that have the gospel, that can come in and say, hey, we're, we're here to help, but then here's why we're doing this. It's a both and. A, we want to help you, yes, all by itself, but then also we want to share Christ with you because that's the most important thing. Um, six, one through two A has one of the most difficult, oh my gosh, I wish we had more time, has one of the most difficult passages in the whole letter. It says, let as, let as many bondservants as are under the yoke. Now, if you're a bondservant, you're already under the yoke. That's part of being a bondservant. Why would he say that? It's almost intensifying what he's already, he's basically saying, look, I know it's hard for you. I know you're under the yoke. Obviously, a bondservant's under the yoke. That's why he brings it up. Let them count their masters worthy of all honor. She's talking about honor. Honor widows, honor elders, 517, 6-1, honor masters. Uh, count their masters worthy of all honor. Why? So that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. And those who are believing masters, so if your master is a Christian, treat them even better. Let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather serve them because they are benefited. Those who are benefited are believers and beloved. Teach and exhort these things. So this chapter does not, this part of this chapter does not condone slavery, but it does speak to a culture in which slavery existed and it gives the servant instructions on how to value their master inside that culture. Same thing with the divorce certificate from the Old Testament. It didn't say, hey, if your wife burns dinner, divorce her. It said, they, were, they were divorcing, any, they were chunking her without a certificate of divorce. The certificate protected her in that culture. They were chunking her anyway. So he was saying, look, in a culture where you're doing that anyway, I don't want you to. I'm going to allow Moses to provide the certificate of protection for her uh, to free her up to not be... At, false accusation, to be free to remarry. I mean, multiple different things, uh, but to, to have some cultural liberties and be okay uh, because saying, hey, this is not my fault. My, my husband chunked me. So uh, same deal here. It's not saying, hey, take slavery. It's speaking to a culture where it already existed. And it gives the servant, hey, here's how you honor your relationship, uh, your master relationship. Now, that's a hard thing. To, that's a hard pill to swallow. Uh, it's not an ideal situation. In fact, it's, sometimes it was a terrible one, but it was a situation that many people found themselves in. So for example, I have a friend in seminary who, in some of my classes, who worked with a Christian ministry in eastern China on the border with North Korea. 
So what separates North Korea from China, eastern China, is a river, uh, two rivers. That's it. You cross the river, you're in China. You cross the river back, you're in North Korea. So he worked with a ministry that uh, took refugees from North Korea to China. So they were based in China. They housed them. They helped them get a job. They helped them build their nutrition back up because usually they're skin and bones. They helped them get on their feet. They shared Jesus with them. A lot of times they end up leading those men and women to Christ. The ones who trust Jesus as their Savior typically choose to sneak back across the border after a time of discipleship and biblical training and share Je- It's their choice. The ministry says, look, you can do it or not do it. It's up to you. They say, I want to I go back. So that they can share Jesus with their countrymen in a situation where they could be killed and their family sent to one of their work camps, concentration camps. You can go look it up on Satellite View on Google Maps if you want, uh, that where they have those, that they have all over their country. Guess how long the life expectancy is for those missionaries that go back? Not long. I think it's weeks or months. Now, why would they do that? Paul tells us why. Look at, uh, look at one and two. So that the name of God may not be blasphemed. And he says, serve those who are believers. So Paul continues what he says in chapter five by telling servants to treat their masters the same way that we're called to treat widows and pastors. And the attitude he says to have here is the same attitude required for all believers. He uses the word honor to attach value to them. He said, look, I know it's hard for you. You're under the yoke. But you serve Jesus no matter what structure socially that you find yourself in. That's what he says in verse two. Now, there's two differences between their slavery and the the way we use the term today in our recent history in this country. There's two key differences. Difference number one, back then you could buy yourself out of slavery. Usually when you were a slave in that culture, you were because you owed someone a debt and you were working that debt off and when your debt was paid off, you were free. So it was an economic slavery. It wasn't an institutional ethnic slavery. So that's a huge difference. And number two, uh, ours was an ethnic slavery based on the color of skin. Well, this fits with number one. Theirs was a slavery based on poverty. So I'm in debt. I'm working this debt off. And so I'm going to jump in and serve and do whatever I need to do. And so that typically was what you saw. But what do you see from these short two verses? That the name of Jesus and broadcasting the truth of this book should be more important than my happiness and my circumstance. Now, why should we believe that? We'll go back to our original story about the North Korean refugees who get saved, get trained, and then risk their life to return to the country so that they can lead their old countrymen to people to Jesus. Do these North Korean men and women go back to share Jesus if this truth is not the case for them? No, they're not going to do it. And that's why. And that's why they do it. Could you be a missionary in a country where Satan's grip is so strong that it's dangerous Saudi Arabia, Iran, Iraq, Syria, Libya, uh, Pakistan, Lebanon, uh, where it's dangerous, northern Africa, and the people might kill you if this truth isn't the case for you. No, you're never going to do that. That's what Paul says here. That's why it's so crucial for us to understand. And the truth that Paul shares is so crucial to surrender to because the name of Jesus and broadcasting the truth about him has to be more important to you than your happiness or your circumstance. And nothing in your life should be more important than that. 
And hey, if you think Paul wasn't called to suffer so that he could broadcast God's message, go read Acts 9. Go read 2 Corinthians 11. He lists all the stuff he had to endure for the sake of sharing the gospel. I mean, he went through the ringer. So I have notes on further study for slavery. I have an interesting article there by a guy named Denny Burke. I put the link of that in your notes. Seven reasons why you shouldn't read 1 Timothy 6, 1 and 2 as an endorsement of slavery. Excellent article. Go read that. Last section is instructions about godliness and wealth management. That's 6, 2B through 10 and 17, 19. He basically says, look, don't look at 6, 10. Y'all heard that phrase, the uh, money's the root of all evil? That's not what the Bible says. What does the Bible say? The love of money. Okay, there's the phrase. For the love of money, 610, is the root of all kinds of evil. That's what he's saying. Not money, the love of money. The Greek word is two words. It's a combo of two words. It's phileo, where we get our word Philadelphia, city of brotherly love. It's phileo, and it's arguria, money. So it's philarguria. It's the love of money. Phileo simply means an emotional, doesn't have to be romantic, it can be, an emotional attachment to someone, the feelings I have for them. That's phileo. So my emotions are attached to my money. That's what this word is saying. That's the problem. You don't attach your emotions to your money, you attach your emotions to your God. You can have a lot of money, that's fine, but if, you attach your, if your emotions are attached to that, that's where the problem comes in, and that's what Paul's saying. So he's going to instruct, we're not, for time's sake, we're not going to read it all, but he's basically going to instruct the wealthy members of the church, look, verse 17, you can enjoy your wealth. He says, God gives us richly all things to enjoy. So it's fine for the wealthy to enjoy their wealth. By the way, not everyone's economically equal in the church. He's talking about specific instruction to give to the wealthy here, right? So there's you know, the implications of that. You apply that how, how you would. Not everyone's equal. There's wealthy, there's less wealthy. It's based on what they do with the resources God gives them and their calling comes into play. There's, that's okay. You don't have to auto-adjust and then make it all equal. So he says, look, you have wealthy members, that's great. Tell them they can enjoy their wealth. Verse 17, there's nothing wrong with that, but look at verse 18. They need to give from it also. Let them do good that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves good foundation for the time to come so that they may lay hold on, and this is a terrible translation, eternal life. The word eternal is not in this verse. It's the word truly. So he's saying that which is true life, let them enjoy an actual true full life. He's not talking about salvation, eternal life. I don't know why they translate it that way. It's horrible. Uh, Last is the good fight. He says fight the good fight. That's 6, 11 through 16 and 20 and 21. And so we need to learn to fight the way Jesus fought. In fact, Paul's going to use Jesus' attitude in front of Pilate in John 18, 28 through 38 as the illustration. He says, I urge you in the sight of God, 613, who gives life to all things and before Christ Jesus, who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate. So he says, hey, the attitude Jesus had in front of Pilate, what attitude was that? He didn't mouth off. He didn't try to get out of it. He was respectful. He was, he had dignity. He was kind to him. He was graceful to him. He wasn't mean. So we need to learn to fight the way Jesus fought with the qualities that Paul gives in this passage here. And then he says at the very end, verse 20, Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust. So we need to guard this truth. We need to guard what God says, meaning I don't add to it. The Pharisees did that, added a bunch of rules, and I don't take from it. And the Sadducees did that. 
They said, well, some of this stuff doesn't matter really anymore. So if we don't actively guard the truth, I think we'll lose sight of it. So homework. Read through 1 Timothy this week. It's only six chapters. Ask God to show you things that he tells you in this letter that you need to hear and obey personally. So if you want to do anything with this book this week, that's what I would do with it. Things he wants to tell you uh, personally. Not your wife, not your coworker. To go, hey, honey, I found this great passage in 1 Timothy on how you need to, no, no, no. It's for you. You. Uh, And then lastly, I put, I think I put it in your notes, a book. uh, This, if you want to dig more into 1 Timothy or 2 Timothy or Titus at any point, there's a great commentary on 1st, 2nd Timothy by a guy named Kosenberger, who's a prof at Southeastern Seminary, and uh, excellent work. Questions, and I'll pray us out. You probably have 10, but just one. Yeah, loud. The church. If there's, it's unanimous church endorsement. Because remember, Jesus says, oh, I can't remember the passage. Jesus says, uh, whatever two or more of you are gathered in my name, I'm there in the midst of you. And then he talks about what you, what you bind on earth will have been bound already in heaven. What you loose on earth will. In other words, I will honor the decisions that you make in unity as led by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit always brings unity. He doesn't lead us to different decisions. He leads us to the same. So as a church body, as you're led by the Spirit in unity to that decision. So that would be, he leaves the judgment up to us in one sense, but in another sense, it's led by his Holy Spirit. So it's really him showing us that. So it's a both and. So it's loud. Yeah, it's not gossiping in the, at the hair salon. It's, you're off the hook. It's, uh, the guy in 1 Corinthians 5 sleeping with a stepmom, and the church knows about it, and they're not doing anything about it. That's an egregious, and no one hunted that sin out. It just, it, it, you know, somebody, it came to the forefront. It rose, and it has a way of doing that. If it's, if it's something God wants that church to deal with, those generally have a way of doing that. Anybody else? We've gone long tonight. Okay, I'll pray. Lord, thank you for this letter that uh, you inspired. Thank you for the fact that you, you led Timothy, uh, Paul to write Timothy this and every word that's on the page down to the verb tense. Uh, that's what you inspired. And so I pray that we would, um, if there's a difficulty with it with us, um, the difficulty is with us, not, not with you. So I pray that we would learn what your word says, that we would be quick to obey it. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.